Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 9. As we consider our fate in God's hand. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 this evening, so I'll begin reading at verse 1 to verse 12. So Ecclesiastes chapter 9, begin reading at verse 1. For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. All things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as is the good, so is the sinner. He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that one thing happens to all. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that they go to the dead. For him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, for they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they have a share in anything under, done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with joy, and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already did your works. Let your garments always be white, and let your head lack no oil. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity. For this is your portion in life, and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. For man also does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time. When it falls suddenly upon them, Amen. Well, let us pray. The Lord, our God, we are thankful that what the world calls fate, we call providence, that everything that comes upon us is according to your predetermined purpose, according to your work. And we're thankful, God, that we can be comforted by this in such a perplexing world. Thank you for all the good things that you give, O God. Thank you for days of prosperity. For we also know, O God, the day of adversity is appointed by you as well. And even though these things are trying that we endure, even though these days of uh, suffering that we have to go through, we know, oh God, you have uh, spoken that these things shall be. You've prepared us for such things that you remind us of where our joy truly lies, where our hope is, and that is in Christ and all that he has done for us. And so we pray, oh God, even in the midst of suffering, may we find joy. In the midst of trials, may we find joy. As we come before you, O God, may we rejoice with trembling. And we know, O God, joy is such a rare uh, quality that we possess. And may we have it before you. May we not grumble or complain, but may we recognize and submit uh, to all things that you have determined for us as your people. Thank you, O God, even though we do not know your work from the beginning to the end, there are some things that are certain. We know that we shall die we know that we shall be raised with Christ. 
And though we die, death has no sting. Death has no victory in him, uh, because of Christ. So may these things give us comfort and encouragement. May we appreciate all the good things that you do. And may we put our faith and trust in you, the God of heaven and earth. So help us now to be reminded of these things. Again, as we come to this difficult book, please give us illumination from on high to better understand what is going on in these words. May you comfort and strengthen us at this time. So be with your people, save sinners, we pray, and in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, when difficult circumstances arise, differing types of people might have differing explanations for what that is. When something that looks like an accident, when something that looks like happenstance comes across someone who is not in Christ or who does not have God, they might say it's fate. They might simply say it's an accident. They might say there's this other great force that is out of their control, and they put their faith in a lot of ways in fate and happenstance and chance. It just seemed to happen. But for the people of God, all of our, all of our circumstances that we come across, all the things that we endure in this world, is by the hand of God. It's a term we often use when we speak about God's sovereignty. Now, often we do it when it comes to God's smiling providences, but we must do it, uh, uh, confess it when it comes to God's frowning providences as well. All things in this world are in the hand of God. The difficulties and even the things that seem like chance, even the things that seem like happenstance to us, it is still according to the plan of God. It is still according to the work of God. It is according to his predetermined purposes. Our hands really are, or are, are, we are really in the hand of God, whether one endures a life of love or one endures a life of hatred. The providence of God might be unknown to us as our life unfolds, but nonetheless, we can confess we are in his hand. But that doesn't change the fact there are things that are perplexing doesn't change the fact there are inconsistencies that we still struggle with. We might confess, of course, God is in control of all things, but then something happens that seems like chance to us, and we struggle with that very thing. And this is what the preacher seems to be wrestling with here as he considers death, as he considers hardship, as he considers difficulty in the vain life in which we live in this world. And remember, he's seeking uh, to determine what profit is there for man in his, all his toil as he labors under the sun. There is vanity of vanities, enigma of enigmas. Things don't always make sense in this fallen world. Last time he saw, we saw how it seems the wicked don't get their due. And he sort of continues, but even though changes to a different section, he moves on to consider the problem of death and the problem of fate. It seems like fate to us, but in reality, it is the providence of God. And even sometimes we all have questions similar to what the preacher uh, asks here in Ecclesiastes 9. What will my life look like? Will it be one of goodness, one of happiness, or will there be much sorrow and suffering? Perhaps there's a bit of both. Will there be one more than the other? And so we are concerned and determined what shall be in our life, what shall happen? Or even we look at things that happen to us and we ask, what in the world was that purpose? And so I think the preacher gives us some good lessons and comfort as we consider providence in an enigmatic world. And so in verses one through 12, really the preacher wants us to consider the end of our time in this world, 
but the end of our time in the hand of God. And so I took uh, my two points from Craig Bartholomew's title of his chapter on this chapter. He calls it the fate of death and the gift of life. And so those are my two points. When we consider the fact that we're going to die, we must consider, A, we are going to die, and also B, that the life we now live is a great gift that God has given to us. So the fate of death, verses 1 through 6, then the gift of life, verses 7 through 12. So the fate of death, verses 1 through 6, and the gift of life, verses 7 through 12. So let's first look at the fate of death in verses 1 through 6. I notice he starts off with an orthodox confession. You know, throughout the book, even despite all the sorrow and sadness and enigma and perplexity, there are times he seems to uh, burst forth and say, fear God. He's drawing our attention to with the whole end of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. Well, he starts off after he's considered some things once again. He wants to declare where our comfort lies. And so he says, for I considered all this in my heart so that I could declare it all. Even this, despite the dismal conclusions he's already found, he still presses on in his quest. And in chapter 8, verse 17, he says, A man cannot labor to discover the work of God. A wise man cannot find it, and a strong man cannot find it. It is in the hand of God. It is God's plan and God's purpose to which we submit. And so he still presses on in that quest about what is good under the sun. And this is a good that he makes that the righteous and their works are in the hand of God. God's people, those who are his race, are in the hand of God. That is something that is absolute sorrow and things that seem to be happenstance in this world. In a life that is full of sin and misery, which Adam brought into this world. The preacher is directing our attention Godward once again. Where do we find our hope? Where do we find our comfort in this vain life in which we live? As all these things that don't make sense seem to happen to the righteous or the wise. But he still highlights, again, the righteous, the wise, those who fear the Lord, those who are with God, those who have been saved versus the foolish versus the sinner, they are in the hand of God and their works. All that comes to pass is in the hand of God. The point is, it's no accident. The point is, it's not chance. The point is, it's not fate. It is not happenstance, but everything that comes to pass in our life and everything that comes to pass in the life of an unbeliever, we know is based upon the plan of God. But brethren, we know that for certain. We know that that is absolutely true. And it ought to be a comfort for the people of God. And so typically when we see God's hand referenced, it usually refers to his sovereign disposition, a positive thing for the believer, a negative thing for the unbeliever. We see the hand of God in a positive way in Ezra 8. When Ezra leads that second return under him, there's three returns after they go into captivity. Zerubbabel is the first, Ezra is the second, Nehemiah is the third. And in Ezra 8, it says, the hand of God was upon us. The hand of God was upon us. The hand of God was upon us. God's hand was upon them, bringing them positively back to the land of Canaan, back to the promised land. It's also used in a negative sense in 1 Samuel 5. 
that humorous text where you see Dagon's falling all the time and the God of the Philistines need to, needs to be uh, picked up. He needs to be carried. His hands and legs fall off. What kind of God is that? Well, the hand of God was upon them. The hand of God was upon the Philistines in that way. God is sovereign, a positive thing for the people, but a negative thing for those who are not in Christ, not the covenant chosen people. So he starts off with this comfort, starts us off with this orthodox confession, with this good reminder, but then things seem to unravel, right? (laughs) He seems to stop and ponder, but things seem like they do not have a purpose. And the reality is, even though we are in the hand of God, people know neither love nor hatred. Sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. He's still, the comfort section is still in verse one there. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. This is a difficult portion of the verse to interpret, but probably what it means is, as we stand and look upon the road of life, we don't know whether it's going to be a life of love or a life of hatred. We don't know whether or not it's going to be smooth sailing. It's just going to be an open road and things are going to be fine. We don't know whether or not there's going to be great potholes. There's going to be broken road. We don't know what that's going to look like. Again, it's all in the hand of God. People in general know neither these things, even the people of God. So we cannot find out the work of God from the beginning to the end. As he is so often highlighted for us, we like to plan what we're going to do in the next hour. We like to plan what we're going to do in the next day. We like to plan what we're going to do in the next week, but we don't really know if those things are going to come to pass. Now, God is good, and a lot of times those things do come to pass, but sometimes they do not. But it's a good way to humble us, good way to remind us in whose hand we are held. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they see before them. And the hope is perhaps we, if the uh, the, the righteous do receive good things, but as he said often as well, that is not always the case. And then in verse two, this is where things begin to unravel. There's that comfort, there's that encouragement, but then he considers what he observes. And he considers the thing and the, the, the certainty that shall come to all. And once again, he speaks about death. He's spoken about death a lot as the great leveler. Chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 7, chapter 8, and once again here in chapter 9. All things come alike to all. Death happens. Death comes by chance to us all. And brethren, the sad thing is sometimes when someone dies, it does seem like chance to us, doesn't it? It does seem like an accident, and we don't know why those things happened. But again, for the Christian, again, for those who are in God, we know we are in the hand of God. But as we observe the enigmas in this vain life, we don't always fully grasp everything that occurs. But death, one thing is clear, death happens to all. And even here, as he distinguishes and judges, he's highlighting the statuses of different people, uses covenant-type language, uses Leviticus language, uses Ecclesiastes 5 language, and when it comes to swearing an oath or those who don't swear an oath. But we see that one event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good, the clean, and the unclean. Again, that uh, covenant-type language, to him who sacrifices, him who does not sacrifice, Leviticus. As is the good, so is the sinner. 
He who takes an oath as he who fears an oath. All this comes to all. Death comes to all of these ones. Death is something we all still must face. We all still must pass through, even as redeemed sinners. We still will die unless Christ comes back in the next five minutes or comes back before you die. We will likely have to die. And brethren, again, I'm thankful that death has no victory and death has no sting, but I'm not looking forward to the way in which I'm going to die because I don't know the way in which I'm going to die. It might be a very painful death. I'm sorry to, you know, burst your bubble with that. We all would love to die in our sleep, but it might not be the case. It might be painful. It might be hard. It might be difficult. Now, the promise and assurance is, as people of God, if we pass, it's just but a momentary light affliction. But it is one that comes upon all in this vain life in which we live. Death comes to all. And then in verses three, and in verse three, he ponders how death comes to the wicked. But in a lot of ways, he's pondering why there is death in this world. He says, verse three, this is an evil thing in all that is done under the sun, that, that one thing happens to all. Death is a vile thing. Death is a result of this fall. Death is something that came in because Adam sinned. Adam engaged in wickedness. Adam brought sin and misery. And by one man, death came into this world. And so he's pondering about what brought death into the world and the people of death. It's akin to considering the fallen nature of this world. Yeah, we like to consider there's so-called goodness in this world. and God does give us good things. When you flick on the news, dear brethren, don't you ever feel just like, wow, the world is just an icky, gross, sinful place. When you consider abortion, when you consider the vile things that go on, when you consider the, the, the violation of the marriage bed and the violation of what marriage actually is, how can you not be well? It happens to them all. Their hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. Remember in chapter one, he said, I sought out wisdom and misery and boy, wisdom, when you seek out wisdom, there's only grief because there's so much sadness and sorrow and wickedness and sin in this world. Brethren, I am thankful for phones in a lot of ways, but in a lot of ways, I'm not thankful for phones. I'm thankful for TVs in a lot of ways, but I'm also not thankful for TVs. You want to know why? Our minds weren't supposed to be inundated with such sadness all the time. No wonder people are more anxious these days because we see the sadness on the news and then we flick to something else and see more sadness. We weren't meant to see all that, dear brethren. We weren't meant to see the sadness and sorrow that occurs in this world. In this world. It's akin to Jeremiah 17. He's considering the wickedness of Israel the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? It's akin to God saying in Genesis 6, being grieved over the wickedness and sinful man that he created and all that they have done. Sin, misery, sadness, wickedness. The truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts. While they live yet, they shall die as well so death comes to all death comes to the wicked and unfortunately death overshadows our life 
I'm sorry if you're hoping for an uplifting sermon today, but death overshadows our life, doesn't it? Listen to the language of verses, and this is verses four through six. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. And perhaps there is hope for good things for the future. Things hopefully could get better in a temporal sense. There is perhaps the idea too, we know as God's people, we have a hope that awaits us eternally. We have a God we hope in. And in fact, the only other time that this word of hope is used in the Old Testament is when uh, Sennacherib is invading Jerusalem and the Rabshakeh comes and mocks uh, Hezekiah and said, who do you trust? Who do you put your hope in? Well, we put our hope in God, do we not? We put our hope in him. So maybe there is some benefit that way. Well, there's still breath, there's still hope, but there's still death. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, even though there is some advantage to living, that's kind of the point of verses four through six, death still overshadows it. I mean, he uses that very vivid language in Ecclesiastes 6, better to be a stillborn because of all the sadness and sin and misery in this world. And there are several ways to take this proverb. I don't really know which one's right. Both could be right. This is a tough book to interpret. But anyway, the proverb says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now, when we think of dog, we're not supposed to think of our pet Sparky and how happy they are. When we think of our dog, I think of a dog here, a dog was despised. A dog was one that was thought of as the lowest of the low. But a lion was admired. A lion was praised. And so it could be that, yeah, you're living great, even though you're a dog, it's better than to be a dead lion. lion. Or it could be you're alive, but you're a dog. Both ways could be taken here for us. It's great. Okay, you could be dead. Either you're a living dog, you're still alive. Great, rather than a dead lion. Or even though you're alive, you're just a dog. So what better is it to be a living dog than a dead lion? That was kind of confusing, wasn't it? The point is, is just what is, what is the death overshadows us all is kind of the point of what he is saying here. However one takes that, even though you're alive, there's sin and misery and you're a dog. We're not admired. We're not praised. There's sadness and sorrow, though we may be alive. And he kind of, I think, goes on to express why, it, why that is in verses five through six. Now, to some degree, the dead know nothing, right? Once you die, you kind of forget, humanly speaking, all the misery and sadness in this world. I'm not saying there's not an afterlife. The preacher is not saying there's not an afterlife. Those who are not in Christ have a very scary afterlife. Those who are in Christ have a glorious afterlife. But the point is he's speaking humanly. And think about it for a moment. Why is it that people, when someone dies, they say, rest in peace? Because they hope that they find peace and they're away from all the misery and sorrow that we have to deal with in this world. That's probably akin to what he is saying here. The living know they will die. The dead don't. <laughs> we know we're going to die. We know it's coming. We know it's going to approach. The dead know that no more. The dead have no more reward. That's a sad thing. They don't have any of the blessings and the portion of some of the good things of this life. And if they die not in Christ, they have no more reward for the new heavens and new earth. And also the memory of them is forgotten. The living know they will be forgotten. 
The living know that we're going to die. And the living know we're not going to experience and share in some of the good things of this world. If I may say, it is better to enjoy the blessings temporally of this life than to be dead and in everlasting hell, right? I mean, it'd be better to enjoy some of still the, the, the shining uh, bless, uh, temporal blessings, the rain falls upon the just and the unjust, rather than being under eternal punishment forever, right? And so what he's saying here is, those who've died do not get to share in any of these things. And we know we're not going to get to share in any of those things. Nevermore will they have a share in anything done under the sun. Things rot, things decay. Unfortunately, our bodies rot and decay. I'm sorry if that's hard for you to hear. It's hard for me to hear too. Our bodies are going to grow old and decrepit and they're going to get brittle and they're going to break. That's encouraging for you, hopefully, but that is reality we all have to endure in this world and look look forward to because of sin and misery. So what really advantage is there in life if we just know we're going to die? Well, let's just jump back to verse one. After all that sad stuff, an important encouragement for us in the wake of that reality is the special care that God has for his people. What comfort do we have in this despairing life? We're still going to grow old and decrepit, and we're still going to have potentially difficult things that come upon us. It doesn't change the fact that God's hand is always upon his people. The difficult providences, the, the frowning providences, but also the smiling providence providences. And this is something only the redeemed know and benefit from. He is our God, our his people. The beautiful thing is, in this time when we do despair over our own sin, over threats from friends, threats from enemies, we do have someone we can go to in those times, do we not? When we struggle, when we go through a frowning providence and great tribulation, can we not cast our cares and burdens upon God and trust in his ways? What's so interesting is in 1 Peter chapter 5, when Peter tells the church there to humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. You know how he says we do that? By casting our cares and burdens upon him. And what's interesting, that is in the context of providence. When we think we would have a better uh, life based on what we want than what God says, that is pride and arrogance. But God has said, that he has determined all things for our good. But even in those difficult, humbling moments, we can still cast our cares and burdens upon God because he cares for us. Even our deepest sorrow, dear brethren, the place where we find great joy remains the same. That is being found in Christ and being part of the family of God. Bridges says, in our deepest sorrow, our ground for rejoicing is the same. It is indeed too rare to find a real Christian, much more rare to find a joyful one. And yet a gloomy professor is a sad sight. Neither the church nor the gospel has sympathy with him. Let him think of the glorious work of the divine mediator. 
giving to his afflicted ones beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. That's Isaiah 61. We might be in ashes, we might be mourning, we might have heaviness, but thankfully we have beauty and joy and praise in Christ and in him. It ought to be a comfort for us, whether love or hatred befall his people in this world, we have Christ and we have the hope of eternal, blessed, everlasting life. And that is a certainty for the redeemed in Christ. Even though the things of life may be difficult, one thing is sure, we're going to die. But though we die, we shall be raised with him on that day. God specially cares for his people. He guides us in this life and he will guide us into the next life as well. May that be a comfort for us as we have to deal with the fate of death. And also as we deal with the reality and the fate of death that shall come upon us, we also ought to enjoy the gift of life. Verses 7 through 12. So in the sorrow and sadness and all the difficulty uh, in this world, we ought to appreciate the life that God gives. Verses 7 through 12. And verses 7 through 10, he teaches us the joy that is found in God. And notice first, we see the joy of good things. Another enjoyment passage, right? And enigmas, perplexities, inconsistencies. Well, here's some good stuff too in it. And then we see often again, Ecclesiastes 2, 3, 4, 5, 8, and 9, that we can enjoy temporal good things in this world. We have a vain life that we live. There's perplexity and sadness and sorrow. So if God gives us something good, should we not enjoy that in the moment and praise him for that very thing? It's the one of the carpe diem passages to seize the day in a lot of ways. I'm not calling for a life of sin. The preacher is not calling for a life of sin, but a recognition of the good gifts of God that he has given to this creation. A recognition of the benefits that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. In a lot of ways, we can summarize Ecclesiastes by three or four words, I guess. Death, life, and God. We're going to die. We have to appreciate the life we live before we die. And we're going to be found in God and kept by him. Death, life, and God. That's the whole thing that we see here. And so if he has given us life, temporal life, and given us good things of this temporal life, given us good things of everlasting life, should we not appreciate them? Henry says, let us relish the comforts of life while we live and cheerfully take our share of the enjoyments of it. Solomon, having been himself ensnared by the abuse of sensitive delights, warns others of the danger, not by total prohibition of them, but by directing to sober and moderate use of them. We may use the world, but must not abuse it. Take what is to be had out of it and expect no more. That is, if God gives you a good meal to eat, you enjoy that meal. No guilt. Remember growing up, I'd always feel bad if I got something good from my mom. And my mom would always say, Michael, don't feel guilty about that. Brethren, don't feel guilty if God has given you good food. Or if you have a little extra money and you want to buy something special for yourself or special for somebody else. That's okay. We ought to thank God for those moments 
We ought to appreciate those things that we can have. And in reality, what he's emphasizing here is the everyday that life is. Joy in the mundane. Joy in the eating and drinking. Go eat your bread, verse 7, with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. God has approved of these good things. Now we saw in Ecclesiastes 6, uh, uh, one has to be given the gift of God to approve, uh, to enjoy such things. We ought to recognize it is a good thing to eat your bread with joy, to have a little bit of wine and celebrate. That's what bread and wine signify, sustenance and joy. And if God gives us both of those things, go enjoy, go eat that bread and drink your wine with a merry heart. There is joy in the mundane. And you know what? There is joy in festivity. There is a time of laughter. There is a time of, of dance. There's a time of weeping and a time of mourning. But there is that time to laugh and the time to dance in this world. And so when it is the time to dance, when it is the time to laugh, do it. Just like when it's the time to weep and the time to mourn, do it. There is a time for everything under heaven. And right now we're focusing on the fun stuff. I'll turn to the negative stuff again in just a second. But right now it is the fun stuff. He has given us good things we ought to enjoy in this world. And he even gives us luxuries. Verse 8, that your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. It's okay to have nice clothes and moisturizer is what he is saying here. I mean, when you think about what the image is here, garments of white. Why did they wear garments of white? Because it's hot in Israel. And typically something that is white helps to cool them down, right? Rather than wearing black in the middle of summer. And the same is true with the dried, airy place in which they lived. So God says, have a little oil to moisturize, to help your bones, to help those things. Oil also does signify joy and happiness as well. But it highlights again when there's times of joy, times of good things, times of garments, times of oil. Be thrilled about those things. Let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. Joy and gladness that comes from him. Now, this language is used in Isaiah 61. And it was in the quote we've, uh, we, we, we read from Bridges. But a lot of this language of the, 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 the blessings of this world are applied to the blessings of the new creation, what Christ does. Isaiah 61. And if you remember, Isaiah 61 is what Jesus quotes in Luke 4. Remember, he reads the scroll. It's Isaiah 61. He says, today, this has been fulfilled in your hearing, referring to himself. But notice what it says. What, what is he doing? What is the, 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 the Messiah bringing? Why did he come? A lot of different things, but to preach good tidings to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim, proclaim liberty to the captives, open, uh, opening of the prison to those who are bound, the acceptable year of the Lord, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, to give them oil for of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Christ gives us good things. Christ gives us good things in this world, but the heavenly kingdom far outweighs 
the good things he has given us in this world. And the image that is used here to speak of the unspeakable joy that awaits in Christ is the language like what we see in Ecclesiastes. Oil of joy, happiness for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Christ is good. God is good, both temporally, but even more so spiritually. But it's okay again, ladies, next time you need some moisturizer and your husband says, don't do that. Well, Ecclesiastes 9.8, enjoy some oil, lack none of it. Uh, so yeah, we can enjoy good things in this world. But also, verse 2, we can also uh, have the joy of a companion. Verse 9. Now, of all the carpe diem passages we've seen, this is a new focus here for us. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all the days of your vanity. For that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. And so... It's a good thing, you know, God also, perhaps a lot of this is creation focused, right? And so again, it focuses our attention back to creation. God gave good things at creation, right? God also gave marriage at creation. And I think the implication here isn't just the companion one has and enjoying life that way. Perhaps there could be a reference here to the marriage bed and sexual intimacy. We must remember, dear brethren... And sometimes we forget this, that God made the marriage bed before the fall. God made it good before the fall. God gave it as a blessing before the fall for this creation. Now, yes, it's been corrupted. Yes, I understand we live in a hyper-sexualized society in which we live in. But sometimes, dear brethren... And it's probably good. Definitely tell teen, well, anybody, you have to abstain until you get married. The marriage, marriage bed is the one place it can be expressed properly. But if we always tell teens it's bad, 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 it's bad. Then when they get married, what's going to happen? They're going to think it's bad, right? We have to tell them here is the proper place for it. It is a good thing, but it must wait until then, but we must not change or be, be um, forgetful of the fact that it is a blessing God has given. Albert Martin, in his antidote to sexual impurity, he says, if we forget that point, it's like putting on a shirt with the button in the wrong spot. I think he's absolutely right. And notice what he says here. God has given good things in this world, even the marriage bed. There is a physical aspect that God has given for enjoyment. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life. Now, there is that book called Song of Solomon. I have no idea what it's about. I'm just going to say that right now. But there's usually two schools of thought about what it's about. A, it's about Christ and the church. And B, it's about the marriage bed. I honestly don't know. But there is still an element that teaches about the blessings of that intimacy, perhaps even if it is a pointer to Christ and his church. It is a creation mandate, a creation gift, and we have to be careful with overreaction. And in fact, in Proverbs 5, Solomon says, one way to avoid the adulteress is to enjoy one's wife. Proverbs chapter 5. It's a blessing. It is good. 
It is a it is a wonderful thing that God has given to this world, and we ought to appreciate that very thing in its proper place. And with Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, it highlights it's, you know it's not wrong to dress nice, it's not wrong to look nice, it's not wrong to be pleasing to your spouse. I'll let you in on a secret: if my wife didn't like this beard, I would not have this beard. When my wife says it's time to shave, guess what? Or trim it? I, I, I trim it. I mean, we want to please the people that, you know, we are connected to. And if we want to attract a mate, we want to be attractive to attract a mate that way, right? Too. So it's not wrong to dress nice. It's not wrong to look nice. It's not wrong to have any of those things. I'm sorry if that goes against whatever, anything you think, but that's what I think and what I think the Bible says as well. So we, it can be enjoyed or ought to be enjoyed in this vain life. Again, privacy, modesty, those are important, especially in this hyper-sexualized hyper world. We have to appreciate this is our portion that God has given. Adversity can come, difficulty can come, hardship does and can come, but it's still a blessing that God gives. So we've talked about a lot today already, right? Death, sex, and uh, we're going to talk about some other things as well. We're also going to talk about labor. Again, creation. All of these things are good that God has given in creation. Verse 10, the joy of hard work now. Whatever you find, uh, your heart, your hand finds to do, do it with your hand. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Our purpose in this mundane life in which we live is to work hard. Don't be lazy. Don't be lethargic. Don't be, you know, do things in a half-hearted way. We ought to do it in a God-honoring, hard-working way. I am definitely not a post-millennial, as you all know, but post-millennials typically have this let's change the world type of aspect. Let's work hard in all things. Yeah, I'm good with that. The working hard in all things aspect, I am good with. I'm not let's change the world type of aspect. I'm not, wow, we're bringing the kingdom by Christianizing everything with that. But I appreciate their desire to do all things well. Should we not desire to do all things well? Even if we're going to be spouses, if we're going to be husbands, if we're going to be wives, should we not do that well? If we're not going to be whatever vocation we are in, should we not do that well? If we're not going to be, if we're going to be parents, should we not do that well? Should we not be the best as much as we are able to? And even too, in the New Testament, Paul, as he's talking to bond servants, which I think applies to the employee-employer relationship today, we work hard as if unto the Lord, because we have our master in heaven, whatever job that is. There is dignity, as long as there's no sin in it, but dignity in, many, in, 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 in vocation and work in this world. If someone works at McDonald's, you, be, you make the best McMuffin you can make. People need to know that that McDonald's has the best McMuffin maker in the world. They ought to know that. If they're engaging in a carpentry, you are the best carpenter you can be. Those are good things. Doesn't it give us purpose in this world this way? It gives us uh, to honor and glorify God in this way. These are all blessed and good things. Hard work is good. Bridges says we have now a rule to stimulate the glow of vital energy. There are works to be done, difficulties to be overcome. Working hard is going to require dealing with hardship in life and overcoming difficulty. 
I mean, that is something that is lost in our modern, I mean, difficulty, hardship. I mean, who would have thought that those things happen? Who would have thought that to be good at something, you have to practice, 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 practice. I love my dear little child, but sometimes she says, it's too tricky for me. And I have to say little one, but you need to, you can do it. You need to press them and push them in those ways. Prepare your kid for the road, not your road for the kid. She's very good at a lot of things. I didn't mean to throw her under the bus with that, but you know, kids certainly say they just, you know, it's too hard. No, work hard. There is difficulty and hardship in this world. And notice the reason why you need to work hard. You're gonna die. There is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. So work hard now. Work hard to honor God now. I mean, all these things are creation mandates, right? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. This all comes from Roman or Genesis chapter nine as well. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. All these things are good things. Hard work is good for us. Hard work is a blessing for us and we ought to work hard as the people of God. So God gives good things. God gives marriage. God gives diligent work in this world. Now for the sad stuff. Verses 11 and 12. And the reason we ought to enjoy all those good things when they come is because we don't know when evil may come. That's what verses 11 through 12, I think, indicate. How quickly evil and hatred can just come. How quickly our fortunes can change on a dime. I think this goes with verse 1 when he talks about love and hatred. He kind of answers it again here, verse 11 and 12. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches of, uh, to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill. But time and chance happen to them all. This imagery here describes what we would call the best of the best. Those who are fast, strong, wise, wealthy, knowledgeable. But it is not for them. Time and chance happen to them all. Just even on a practical note, how many times do you hear about a up-and-coming prospect in whatever sport and they break, break their knee or break their ankle? All the promise is gone. What of that? I mean, chance and happenstance seem to fall. Death comes to young, promising up-and-coming preachers, right? Of uh, uh, unfavorable diagnoses for a young husband or a young wife. All those things can happen and come, uh, things can change on a dime. As Ecclesiastes 3 has warned us, there is a time for everything under heaven. For man, verse 12, does not know his time. Like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare, so the sons of men are snared in an evil time. In an evil time. But it falls suddenly upon them. These things can still happen to the righteous, God's people. But again, we do so in the comfort of the one whose hand is upon us. So enjoy the good things while you may enjoy them. But understand the day of adversity comes from God as well. And it can come very quickly. And one way that ought to be comforting for us is God has told us those things are going to happen. 
Henry says, men often find their bane where they sought their bless and catch their death where they thought to find a prize. Let's therefore never be secure, but always ready for changes that though they may be sudden, they may be no surprise or terror to us. All of this is meant to be a sobering reminder of both the good things that God gives, the gift of life, breathing. Breathing is a gift of life, dear brethren. One thing we like to do at the dinner table is we like to ask our children, I guess my child, Gabriel can't respond yet, but we like to ask Lucy and all of our family, what was your highlight of the day? Well, one day we asked Lucy that question. She said, blinking my eyes. That was her highlight of the day, was blinking her eyes. I don't know whether or not to take that in a positive way or a negative way, whether she's thankful that it was, that was it, that was a good thing. We have to be thankful, brethren, for the fact we can blink our eyes, right? We have to be the fact that we can have good food. We have to be thankful for the fact we can have good labor. We have to receive the day as it comes, mundane daily life so often we go looking for grand signs of god grand changes grand ways we can serve when not to receive what god has given us on a day by day and i really wonder if we had a little less disney in life a little less oprah in life i'm talking in general society a little less disney a little less oprah a little less parents saying you can be whatever you want to be maybe kids would be happier when they grow up if parents told them Life's hard. If parents didn't prepare the road for their kids, prepare their kids for the road. There's hardship in life. There's also enjoyment in life as well. You may not be able to conquer your giants and slay dragons and do all that sort of stuff, but there's still things in this world. Hardship is good for us, even if we do not like it. We ought to receive the day. I think Bartholomew's counsel is very sobering and helpful. Master the day as it comes, but understand there are things about that day we cannot control. We want to control everything. We ought to praise God for the things we can and praise God for the thing and and give up to him the things we cannot. Rather than complain, rather than reject, maybe receive the good things that God has given to us with thanksgiving and also submit to whatever befalls us in this world. And I'll close with this hopefully important, comforting reminder. All things are in God's hand, including the promise of the new creation. And brethren, we don't really know what that new creation is going to look like, do we? We really don't. Unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places, so it is forever. But one thing we can see and perhaps can glean and can get a glimpse of is the fact as we compare the old creation with the new. There are good things. I know it's a fallen world, but there are good things about this old creation, right? As I highlighted this morning, the old creation is a type and pointer to the new. And if God gives good things and gives us blessings in this creation, how much more bountiful will be the blessings of the new creation When Christ comes back and the new heavens and new earth are ushered in. Isn't that what we look towards, brethren? Isn't that what we hope for, as Peter says? This world is hard. This world is difficult. But we look for the new heavens 
and new earth. We look for the new creation as we are the new creation people already in the Lord Jesus Christ. Death comes to all. Life is a gift, but there is nothing greater than the gift of eternal life. If you're in Christ, you have it. If you're not, you don't. And if you're not, believe on Christ and you shall have it. But let us pray. Lord, our God, we are thankful that you created this world in the space of six days and called it very good. Thank you, O God, you gave Adam, the man, a task. Thank you, O God, you gave man a companion. Thank you, O God, you gave man work and gave man the fruit of his labor. And even though man fell, even though sin and misery, it was by the sweat of our brow that we would work in this world. And we're thankful, O God, that you still even give good things. Rain for fruit, uh, rain from heaven and fruitful seasons that our hearts may be full in you. Thank you that the rain falls upon the just and the unjust. And may we, your people, be a thankful people. May we, your people, recognize that this is from you. May we, your people, be honoring. May we, your people, be hardworking. May we, your people, know how to enjoy the good things and not make them bad gods. But may we also submit to whatever difficulty may come upon us swiftly. May we know that both the day of adversity and prosperity is from you. And we're thankful, O God, you remind us and teach us of these things as we navigate this fallen world. But we are thankful for the certainty that if we believed on Christ, if we are in him, though we die, we shall have a new body. Though we die, we shall be brought into the new heavens and new earth. And thank you, O God, that something far greater than what we experience and see, something far greater awaits us, something that is unfathomable to our minds, but it is unfading, undefiled in the heavenly places. So we pray, O God, you'd help us as we walk by faith. We long to see it by sight, but we're thankful, O God, you help us even now in this world. Help us to be sober, help us to trust, Help us to put our faith in you. And we pray, oh God, you'd guide us and lead us to the end. Be pleased to save sinners. Be pleased to be with your saints. And please be glorified in all things we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.